Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Luke Holman is the founder and CEO of First Fruit, a benefit corporation devoted to creating great economic equality. A serial entrepreneur and internationally recognized expert in agile software development, Luke's last company, Contineo, was an enterprise collaboration software company that helped large enterprises administer more than $3 billion using participatory budgeting techniques. First Fruit's mission is to create financial literacy in children capable of transforming their communities as they become financially independent adults through creativity, communication, critical thinking, collaboration, and civics. I am so excited about that mission. I'm excited to hear about your journey. I know you sold your first company, uh, and you know I know you have some philosophies on the kind of deals you do, but before we get into any of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because for many people, it's not what they ended up doing, but you tell me. Yeah, so there was a couple of things I wanted to be when I was eight and ten. Man, I haven't had that question ever uh, on a podcast or or a, for a while. So I'm I'm kind of really giving myself a pause to think about it. There were a couple of things that I really wanted to do. Believe it or not, I grew up uh, outside of Buffalo, and I was a figure skater. Wow! And so uh, you know, it's ice and it's cold. And so one of the things I wanted to do was I wasn't thinking about profession. Right. I wasn't thinking about my job. What I wanted to do was go to the Olympics. Right. Because anyone. Right. I mean, when you're a young kid and you're in a sport and it's an Olympic sport, you're 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 just thinking, you know, the romance of the Olympics. And so the, the thing that I would truthfully tell you is but at that age, I wasn't thinking about like what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just was thinking I want to be in the Olympics because I had just started skating at 11. Uh, I don't really remember much before then, but I was just captivated by this uh, sport that was hard. You know, I played baseball, it was okay. And my I'm the youngest of six kids and my brothers and sisters were all basketball players yep. and they were much better at it than me. And I was small. And so they would just dominate me in basketball. And so basketball wasn't any fun because you just <laughs> get beat on. And I found my little thing that was unique and I just wanted to go to the Olympics. So I'm going to go with that answer because it was just like, that's what you wanted to do. Love it. Love it. So uh, Luke, one more question thinking back. Um, What was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid. It could be something early in your career, just whatever comes to mind. Well, you know, I'm going to go with the skating theme because uh, I grew up pretty poor. My uh, dad died when I was four and my mom raised six kids on her own. And uh, as I started to get good at skating, I couldn't really afford um, the lessons because they were really expensive. So I remember my first deal was me. And I would go to people in our church and I would ask them for small donations to help me keep skating. 
Yeah. And uh, they could make those donations in a tax-deductible way to the United States Figure Skating Association. Okay. And then the USFSA would... Uh, so, so I remember that, you know, my mom said, look, I, you know, we don't have the money. And I said, well, I really want to skate. She said, well, you have one choice, right? Can you overcome your fear of asking people to help? Because otherwise you're not going to skate. And I'm like, yeah, I'd rather skate. So it's amazing, I think, what happens in deals, and and I can say that throughout my career is, as the as more zeros are added to the deal, right? They can feel a little scary. Even if, you know, I and I don't I don't buy into this theory that oh, you know, I'm some high flutin business executive, and I'm never concerned, or I'm never afraid, or I'm never. And I don't mean like fear, like terror. I just mean like yeah, this is new. It's novel. It's it's something I haven't done before. But then you just carry that forward, right? Because one small deal successfully executed gives you the insights and the foundation to build out that next deal and that next deal and that next deal. And eventually the numbers really do get big. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that, right? So you you had a product company that you grew significantly and you ended up selling it. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how you prepared that company for that deal how you did that deal. And then of course I want to talk about why and how you got into your current business and what kind of deals you're doing and, and, and really what that business does in more detail. Yeah. you know, the last company was uh, partly a story of the deals I didn't do. Mm-hmm. So I was having this enterprise software company and the problem that we were specifically solving was in portfolio management of large companies. So imagine you're a BMW or a Cisco or a Salesforce, eBay, you're dealing with portfolios of uh, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in terms of how are you going to make decisions and where you're going to place your investments. And big companies are not a lot of different than you and me in terms of our family finances, right? Our family finances has some stable stocks and we have some more aggressive stocks. We might have some bonds. We might have some real estate. We have a portfolio of investments that's trying to create a certain kind of return and manage a certain kind of risk. Well, of course, corporations are the same way. They have a portfolio of investments and they're going to try and create certain kinds of returns and manage certain kinds of risks. The current products in the market that are doing well fund the innovations of the new products, right? That classic cycle. Well, what I noticed was that that annual budgeting process was garbage, right? You're, you're, you're supposed to collaborate with your peers and then at the end of the year, you fight over the budget. <laughs> It's, it's garbage, right? And you're laughing because, but it's the awkward humor because it's like, yeah, it is kind of garbage. Yep. So I designed a process called participatory budgeting in which corporations would use collaborative techniques to establish the budget. And I started building out that software and we started growing a little bit. Uh, it was organically a a grown company, venture capitalists thought the idea was dumb. And sometimes I think venture capitalists are dumb. And so we just kept going. And then we had our first offer to sell the company, but it was in Silicon Valley terms, it was called an aqua hire. And what that means is they're not buying your company for your customers or your assets. They're just buying it for your employees and then they're going to redeploy them. So the first deal lesson that I had when I talked to some of my advisors and I also talked to my employees, they're like, well, do you want to do the deal? And I thought about that. And they're like, you know, there are times where the deal is about money and you need money. And at that time we were doing fine and we didn't need the money, if you will. 
And so the question was, did we want to do the deal? And I brought it to my team and I said, do we want to sell? And they said, no, we don't want to, we don't want to be an acquihire. So I think that that's part of the, the and, and I don't know who said it, but I'm sure a lot of people have said it. There's, you can't do a deal that you can't walk away from, right? You have to be able to walk from a deal. Otherwise it's probably not a good deal for someone. Yep. Um, then time progressed and I tried to sell the company. I actually hired an outside firm to try and help me sell it. We couldn't get a buyer, could okay. not get a buyer. So then the second lesson on the deal flow of that company over its career was I had an offer. I said, no, I got a little ahead of myself. I said, oh, I obviously can sell this. Well, I couldn't. I couldn't find it. So I pissed away $130,000 on, on an investment banker, business on an investment banker, yeah. you know, 10K a and month. What, what was it just to, because it's always interesting what it takes to, for a company to be saleable. Were there issues in your company that had to be fixed? Was it a bad market time? Was it like, what were the reasons you couldn't sell? Yeah. So I would say that there weren't external factors like a bad market. Um, Because it was in the, you know, it was around 2016, 2017. It wasn't like it's a bad market at that time. Everything's fine. Uh, At least from my perspective, it was just that we were too small. Our revenue structure was too small and our mix was wrong. And what I mean by that is that we were a small software company, but we also sold services. And at the time we wanted to sell, the uh, mix of services and software sales wasn't quite right. And I didn't realize that the services component was too much of our revenue. Yeah. Then the deal actually happened because a strategic partner that I had been working with took me out to dinner and out of the blue, he says, uh, so what are you going to do with your company? And I said, I, I mean, we're at dinner, having a, you know, a beer and, and he's a really good guy, Dean Luffingwell. He's, a, he's the founder of the other company that bought us. And he's just a great man. Someone I really admire, very experienced entrepreneur, created and sold multiple companies, you know, took a couple of companies public, very, very successful. It's like, so, you know, and he's, you know, he's like a little bit older than me. So he's, he, you know, I just thought he was giving me advice, right? I, I said, well, I'm going to sell it. He's like, oh, who are you going to sell it to? I'm like, that's a good question. I got to get a buyer. <laughs> and then he says, what do you sell it for? And I said, X. And I remember him pausing in the dinner. He said, that's a totally fair number. And I said, well, Dean, you've worked with me for a while. When have I not been fair about my deal? He goes, well, you're always fair. He said, but the thing is, is that people have a psychological bias to value something they created higher than other people will pay. And it causes all sorts of problems. He says, but that is a totally fair price. Now, the way I calculated the price was that I took my revenue mix and I took my services revenue. I multiplied it by 1.2. And I took my software license revenue and I multiplied it by eight. Now in software license revenue, the multiples are usually six to 10. So it was right square dead middle. And in services revenue, it's usually 0.8 to 1.2. So I was on the high end of my service revenue, but I could justify it through our unique blend. Took those two numbers, added it together and handed it to them. And Dean said, you know, that's a totally fair number. And I think, so the, the next lesson is to do the deal. I'm not a fan of starting with inflated numbers and negotiating. I'm of the school and I know there are different philosophies and and there's different negotiation books and there's different things that, you know, start with an outrageous number and then work yourself down. I think that that's partly who you are as a person. 
Yep. And who I am as a person, uh, Corey, is kind of like my number's my number. And I divide it fairly. And if you don't like it, don't do the deal. But if you think I'm going to start with an inflated number and then you're going to work me down, I, I'm going to walk. Yeah. So the net is, Dean says that's a totally fair number. And in the entire negotiation of the sale of the company, the number never came up once. Wow. There were other questions about intellectual property. Uh, of course, you know, who owns the assets and is the software unencumbered and what's the nature of the relationships and, you know, what are your brands? What are your trademarks and all that kind of stuff. But the actual number never came up in the deal. And, and I think that that's important for listeners who are like, look, I'm actually not telling them to not negotiate the way some people say to negotiate. I'm saying you got to negotiate the way that you feel comfortable with. 100%. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, we're, we're just getting to know each other. Uh, but I've got a book out on negotiating. And for me, it's uh, the, the book is all about the internal body of work you need to do, right? And it comes down to self-awareness to, to oversimplify it, right? Like, know who you are, know, know what you want, know what you, you know, get clarity, right? You, you mentioned something, you know, the, the willingness to walk away, that kind of stuff, whatever. I mean, that I call that detachment, right? Because walking away from a place of anger, ego, upset is not the way to do it. But, but being clear on, hey, this is what will work for me. What works for you, great. If not, then, you know, this is my number. I'm not looking to play games on negotiation. You had clarity, which is my first point in my, in my fundamental framework. You had detachment because you were, you had a preference to do, to do a deal. But if somebody couldn't meet those terms, that was your number and you weren't going to, you know, negotiate down from there, right? And then my third piece, which people know is equilibrium, where you, you maintain your equilibrium during the negotiation, you don't get thrown off by, you know, you came in with such clarity and you were fair and you were detached and the other side saw that that was fair. So that made for ease of a deal. Sure, they would do diligence on the deal points to negotiate more than price, you know, but but once people think, you know, get to that fundamental level, it's so much easier to work through it. So it's a great, it's a great example. Yeah, and I think that that notion of, of fairness. I, I once had a buddy of mine who looked at the results when we were done. He's like, you know, I think it could have got more. I'm like, maybe I could have, I, you know, but that's, that's not relevant. Right. I chose the number I was comfortable with that, that I felt was fair. And by definition it was fair. Cause that's the number we ended up selling it for. Right. So I, I think that those are all super critical uh, points. And, and I, and I like this um, notion of detachment because the other parts of the deal terms I mean, it wasn't just the number, right? There were a couple of parts of the deal terms that were important to me, like no uh, restrictions or handcuffs. And yet after the deal, I stayed a full year uh, on the job to make sure the integration went well, to complete some things that I I'd agreed to going in. Um, and, and I think that you're buying the company. And if you want to create a good environment for me, who's now not the CEO, but the employee and my other employees, then you you know that's part of the acquiring company. I'm not going to put artificial restrictions on that. Now, to their credit, the entire team that they acquired is still there almost two years later. That's great, right? That's so great. I, I have to give them credit, year. right? Yeah. Um, to create they they created an environment and and uh, uh, and then going in, I'll, I'll say one more thing. If you haven't done deals before, and I had done other deals, I had acquired in my company, I had acquired other companies and whatever and been involved in and stuff. What people sometimes don't know is the deal is the time where you toss in the extra stuff that isn't part of the deal, but it's easier to wrap it up into the transaction itself. It's kind of like 
when you're um, doing a home remodel, you take a big bite if you're gonna take a second equity line because taking two small equity lines is actually worse than taking one bigger equity line. And, and if, you know, like for example, if you wanna add a room and you wanna do a little bit of else work, then take a bigger equity bite than you need in your home to add the room so that you have the money to do the other work. And what I liked about negotiating that deal with, with Scaled Agile, the company that acquired us, is that they actually, they actually said, hey, look, as part of the deal, do you have things that you want to invest in? And we said, yeah, we do. We've got these three things that we want to invest in. Can we put a budget in and make it part of the deal? It's not money that's coming to us, but it's reserved and we can make these investments. And they're like, sure. So I think that when people who are new to deal making, the transaction can be structured so that the total amount of money is available to enable both transactors to be successful but that doesn't necessarily mean the money is changing hands in the deal process. Right, right. right. Yeah, now it's interesting that you say that because I, uh, I was just on the, on the phone with a client who was you know, helping to structure a deal now. Yeah, I mean, he, he wants to get a fair price, but it, there's also, you know, he has 14 employees that have many of them have been with him for a long time. And he has a very high priority on making sure those employees are taken care of. And so part of the bucket of money that he's negotiating is not only the piece that's coming out to him, but it's also the piece that's going to be in the compensation pool for his employees who are who are staying behind because he cares about them, right? So that's all, you know, yeah. he could be pulling out more money for himself and maybe they cut some people or they put whatever, right? But that's not where he comes from, right? He's, he appreciates those folks. Um, you know, he's done very well, you know, otherwise, you know, so he doesn't need every dollar. Uh, and, uh, you know, but that is a, it's a total bucket, but he's only going to take a piece of that bucket for himself. The other folks that money's actually going to stay in the company because it's going to cover their 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 employment costs, you know, over a period of time. Yeah, and then and then they get time to get absorbed. They get time to reset the relationships with their new employer, their new employees, their new colleagues. There's a lot of value in that approach for everyone because we all know as business owners, it's very expensive to hire new employees. It's not just the recruiting costs; it's the training costs. It's the lost um, tribal knowledge. Doesn't matter what industry it is. Uh, all those things are real costs and having a person who's clear, like you said, and he is like, look, I, I need my money. Of course, he's the founder or the owner, whatever. He's got his share, he or she. But the notion that uh, the follow through, right, you can hit the ball. And if you don't follow through, it doesn't go very far. Yeah, no question. And and uh, and, it's, and you're right. I mean, and, and listen, talent's a big thing at this time. And, and you know, uh, you talked about the deal you didn't do, the acquire. You know, there are a lot of those deals, you know, going on and uh, and sometimes they're right for folks, right? Because sometimes the hardest thing is, I mean, I can't tell you how many folk, uh, entrepreneurs I know where their biggest issue is, is finding talent, is finding people. So if they can do an acquire or, or a real acquisition, you know, where they are getting other assets and so whatever, you know, it's amazing how much uh, sometimes employees, key talent is driving deals these days, you know. Yeah, absolutely. 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 It's, whether it's an acquire, whether it's set up as a full acquisition of the company, you know, it may be the employees that are driving the deal. All right. So let's so let's talk about this evolution. So now you, you sell the company, you stay on for a year, right? Uh, and then now comes right first route, right? Which is your current company, or is there anything in between? Give give me the journey and yeah. And, so and remind people exactly what first route does. And then I want to talk about the deals on that. Absolutely. So let's let's go through the journey. So I start in Cantaneo in 2010. 
And that takes about a decade, right? It takes about nine years to get to a sellable point. And I learned lessons about how to make it sellable because they're buying an asset. So you have to create that. But what happened was while Contineo was creating participatory budgeting solutions for enterprises, I started to do that work philanthropically in cities and schools. So I would assemble hundreds of citizens in places like San Jose, California, or um, Lublin, Poland, I've done it around the world. And we would bring the citizens together to make decisions about the city budget. In San Jose, there was a potential tax increase. So we were talking about if we did this tax and we raised $30 million, what are the kinds of services we could spend it on? And then I had this idea of like, what would happen if we went into schools and we had a very simple idea, let's give the kids real money but support them as they decide how to invest it. And this is this process again, known as participatory budgeting. And the idea is the kids are participating, they're actively involved. Now, yeah. Corey, we don't walk up to the kids and say, you know, here's $2,000 or here's $10,000 and walk away. We actually guide them through a process. They, the first step of the process is the kids do discovery. They go out and they talk to other kids, they talk to the teachers and they identify problems and opportunities. Maybe the problem is that the school doesn't have enough school spirit because of COVID. Mm -hmm. Then they do a dreaming phase. We tell them, just dream. Like, what would you do if you had money? And they say, oh, I would have a dance or I would paint a mural or whatever. We say, okay. The next phase is design. Teaching them some design thinking techniques of, is it feasible? Is it viable? How much money is it going to cost? You want to get a mural? Great. What's the paint? Who's got to approve it? Who does the artwork? So we teach them how to develop an idea into an actual proposal. The next phase is they decide. The students vote. And notice I keep saying the students. It's not the teachers. It's not the parents. It's the students. When the voting is ratified, the students join with the teachers and they do it. They actually see their ideas put into action. So there's five Ds. They discover, dream, design, decide, and do. Wow. And they make amazing choices. We work with a school, the Academy of American Studies in Queens, New York, not too far from where you're from. Yeah. And they ended up buying more menstrual products for the girls' bathroom and a 3D printer. We worked with an elementary school in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. They ended up planting a tree and buying soccer nets. We worked with a school in Indianapolis. They ended up getting uh, books for a library and a new reading space. We worked with a school here in California. They ended up buying an outside cabinet to display flyers because they didn't want the flyers they were posting to keep falling on the ground and littering. Mm. And they bought new seating. They wanted more seating for outside. I mean, it's California, right? You get to eat salad. Yeah. So the kids do amazing things. But what we also do with that, Corey, is that we provide a curriculum on personal finance and a curriculum on civics. So if a school wants to emphasize financial literacy, what I tell people is, look, it doesn't matter if you're a multi-billion dollar business or you're a startup mom and pop or you're a restaurant everyone has a budget and the budget is never enough money because human imagination is unbounded and human resources are bounded. And so learning how to navigate those choices is 
to me, the most central activity. And rather than doing some goofy stock market simulation, right. we're putting real money. And it's so amazing how the kids behave because, yeah, they create silly ideas, right, Corey? We did we we did one project here in California where the kids, one of the kids' ideas was let's let's have a duck pond. We're not going to put a duck pond in the school. But what's cool about that is that is that eventually what you see when the kids are are working in our software and you analyze like the chats and the interactions, eventually one kid will say something like, look, that's a dumb idea. We're not going to put a duck pond in the school. This is real money. What do we really want to do? And there's that moment of realization like, hey, wait a minute. You know, real money changes how people behave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I always call it the Porsche question. You know, Corey, ask me if I want a Porsche. <laughs> you want a Porsche? Yeah. Sure. I want a Porsche. You want a Porsche? <laughs> of course. Yeah. Here's some Monopoly money, kid. Go. Good luck. <laughs> Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. I love what you're doing. You know, it's, it's listen, this is not a new conversation in that it's, you know, it's amazing to me. I mean, I look back even my education and how, you know, fi financial literacy, you know, even even basic budgeting, forget investing, forget whatever, like it's just not taught in schools. Right. You know, and, uh, and uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to have, you know, parents that had at least some fun fundamental understanding of fiscal responsibility, mainly because they had to when I was growing up because they were lower middle class and like really had a bunch of their money and then became more comfortable over time. Um, but but I look back and and like there's so much. I mean, I speak to my friend David Bach, who wrote Automatic Millionaire and some of these other great books. And just you know, if if I had understood, uh, listen, maybe I would have been resistant because like every, every teen or twenty something year old, I maybe maybe I would have been still living for the now. At least I would have had a better understanding if I put away you know twenty bucks a week or whatever, like the concept concepts of compound interest and the concepts of you know building it and what it would be over time and. You know, and, and and fiscal responsibility. I mean, I you know, I went through my own journey around spending what I made, even when I made a good living in the, and and that's on an individual basis, right? Then when you bring it to a school, a company, a community, or whatever basis, you know, there's so much available there, and the, and the fundamental education, you know, has, has been so lacking around it. Well, right? I want to pick up on something that you said, right? I mean, there's two kinds of things that I think are are important. One is my individual knowledge, right? There's there's factual knowledge. I need to know what a stock is. I need to know what a bond is. There's skill. I need to be able to compare investments. But what is missing a lot that we are able to talk about is disposition. Am I more conservative? Am I less conservative? Am I a longer term thinker or a shorter term thinker? And the reason that's so important is uh, when we start to get into a significant source of strife for families and for uh, uh, people who are married is money. Yeah. Because we haven't been taught how to talk about money. We haven't been taught how to negotiate. And, and I like to share the story. My wife and I are both runners and it's California, right? So I'm going to go run. Mm -hmm. Now, if I go out and buy a pair of new running shoes, my wife doesn't care, right? It's a small expense. It's consistent with my pattern of purchases. Mm -hmm. And I, and she knows it, she doesn't care, right? It's, uh, it's in the budget. Now, of course, I care when I go to the running shoe store 
because there might be a new model and the running shoe salesman will say, hey, look, the model that you used to buy isn't there. Let me show you the different. And I care about the technical knowledge, right? But now uh, we have, a, I have four kids and we have a minivan that's 14 years old. And we hit the point where my wife and I agreed that if there's a repair over $500, right? And she was actually had her fingers crossed. She's like, honey, I got a smog check. If it fails, we'll get a new car. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> and then she comes home and I'm like, how did it do? She's like, ah, oh, pass. I'm like, okay, we'll keep it. That's but how do you think my wife would feel if I just went out and bought a new minivan without her input? Mm, yeah, yeah. Very different than the shoes, huh? Very different than shoes, right? Because it's, it's an expensive purchase. Even though it's in our budget, it's a shared resource. And that's the point of participatory budgeting. Yeah. We not only have to learn the technicalities of personal finance and personal choice, we also have to learn the true reality, of the human reality that money is never solo. Personal finance doesn't mean it's yours alone. It means that you have personal knowledge that you, and, and in business, you don't make money, you don't make decisions in a business on your own. There's, you know, presidents have boards of directors and, and general managers have their reports and managers have the people they, you know, are other managers. We're always making these decisions about money in collaboration with other people. Voting is about money, right? We know that. So as we as a society are losing that ability to have conversations about how do we want to make our investments? Because we're just arguing about the wrong stuff. Yep. Yep. No, I love it. Yeah. And that participatory point is, is crucial. You know, many years ago, I guess it was in 99, it wasn't particularly around budgeting, but what I, I, I was in this Coro New York leadership program and it was for quote unquote mid-career executives. And it was a program that brought together folks from private sector, nonprofit and government uh, in a leadership training context to uh, come together and participate together to figure out some of the problems of, that were going on in the city and to work together for, with all those stakeholders, right? To, to come up with, you know, with solutions. But stuff because one of the issues is that a lot of times the stakeholders are not working together they're working against each other right they have right so you know it just reminded me of uh, of that because that was a participatory model not around finances per se although certainly when you talk about uh priorities of the city and what they're going to do budget is a significant factor in it but i love the you know i love that concept of what you're doing the, you know the participatory element of it and you know and the applications of it you know, from corporate to schools, to communities, to families, right? You know, I mean, it's... it's right. So it's in really a way, fun. you know, we're teaching some of these elements of deal making and deal negotiation. So now let's talk about like, where are the deals and what's coming for First Root? Because, yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, the I deals that we want to talk about is, yeah. there's a couple of things. One is, um, and, I, and I know the listeners will appreciate this, They're, the companies uh, I'm going to talk to, I'm going to just talk to is na without names. I'm going to talk them, in, but we're, we're in negotiation with a very large uh, financial services firm who has thousands of agents, financial planning agents that help individuals manage their finances. And these investment advisors uh, they have some goals, right? They want to be in their community. They also want to reach into the family to talk about the intergenerational transfer of wealth that is starting to happen as boomers are starting to age and technically not to be morbid, but as boomers are starting to die, we're seeing a massive transfer of wealth and it's going to get bigger. There's an estimate of more than $30 trillion 
of boomer wealth will be transferring into subsequent generations over the next 15 years. No question. And Luke, I'm going to hop in here for a second because it's going to be relevant, I think, to what you're saying. What's really interesting is I happen to represent hundreds of financial advisors, investment advisors, it's a niche of mine. And um, one of the things that uh, investment advisors, financial advisors uh, have a horrible record on is keeping clients when money transfers from one generation to the next. That's right. That's a terrible. When it, when it goes to the spouse, very, very stereotypically, and this is still statistically true, you know, the, the man dies, right? The woman, maybe, maybe the wife takes over. Horrible statistics there. Or when it goes down to the kids, horrible statistics there. So I know the industry is looking hard to figure out a way how to approve that. And my guess is what you're about to tell me is, is, is part of their motivation because I know the industry. It's exactly right. I mean, you, you nailed it on the head. They, they're worried about, as near as we can tell, the firm that we're working with identified three big problems. One is for an investment advisor to be known within their community, especially when they're attracting clients within their community, just to be a, a, a citizen. And it's kind of a hard thing to advertise for. That's one big thing. So we're working with them to sponsor a school. And, and again, sponsoring a school is a small amount of money. I didn't mention this earlier, but we didn't talk about the amount of money that we give to the kids. It's actually a very small amount of money. It's usually two thousand to ten thousand dollars. It's it's not like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. In fact, uh, Corey, I joke that we want enough money for the kids to think it's meaningful, but not so much money that the parents take over. Right. Right. right? Now, ten thousand dollars. You can actually do good things in the school for ten thousand sure. dollars. Right. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to build a new gymnasium, but you can do good things. So the second thing the investment advisors need is a reason to talk with their family, their, their clients about intergenerational wealth. Yes. So the way that we're working this is our software platform is free for families. Now, what would you do in a family unit in a participatory way? Well, how about a home improvement? Mm. How about including your kids in the discussion of charitable donations? That's how my wife and I work. We, we're like the CEOs. We establish the budget and then we bring our kids in and we talk about, okay, this is how much money we're going to give to charity this year. How, how do we want to do it? And the, if the kids want to go to the same charity, then I get to ask them questions like, well, how do you know that the charity spent the money you gave last year? Well, have you done your homework? The, and then the last thing that you can do as a family unit is you can plan a family vacation. And now you get all of these really interesting concepts of financial literacy. Why is it okay for mom and dad to take a home loan when they're adding a room, but it's not okay to take a loan to go on vacation? When, when the kids say to mom and dad, hey, can we go to the movies on Friday night? And mom and dad say no. And the kids go, come on, movie tickets are only you know 15 bucks a person. Mom and dad are thinking, well, uh, it's the movie ticket and it's the popcorn and it's the soda and it's the parking. So it's not 15 bucks a person. It's a total cost of ownership. And so what we've been doing with these financial advisors is say, look, you want to teach these concepts to your clients and you want to have a reason to be in front of those kids to establish the relationship and get that client, that intergenerational client, and you don't know how, and they, all, all the financial advisors we've been talking to in this firm, which is a, a fairly large firm, they're like, yeah, we've got a network of financial advisors, and they all have the same problem. They don't know how to talk to their, they, I mean, they know how to talk to mom and dad, sure, 
but they don't know how to bring the kids into discussion and that annual and that annual you know typically financial advisors have a big annual meeting and then a couple of true ups over the year yes well when you're having that big annual meeting that is the perfect time to say hey are you going to take a family vacation this year we've we've been allocating some money hey have you thought about bringing your kids into the discussion about how that money is spent and and it's an exciting idea and it in terms of partnerships it it's i'm not sure if it's going to be a joint venture mm -hmm. or a straightforward partnership and i think that that's you know one of those lessons for the people on the deal is to remember that many times in a deal it's the co-creation of value between the two entities and so sometimes the, the right way to approach a deal is like not like hey i got a solution but it's more of hey i got an idea yeah and then and then listen the you know as you flesh it out if you smart the structure will show up like sometimes people get too tied up in the structure too early right you know and it's like you know well let's figure out what everybody's doing what who's bringing what to the table how is it gonna come and then we can figure out what, what the deal you know, yeah and then they act like the structure is going to be set for all space and time right. when you know it's like dude it's a contract you negotiated one you can negotiate a change right i mean if you have a good relationship like in first route uh we just finished a, a deal of sorts we did a convertible note round to raise a little bit of funds yep and then i needed to make a, a term change and you know the contract said one thing and people are like oh my gosh you know you have to change the convertible note. i'm like come on you just go to the people you explain the change they sign it and you're done so i think the other part of that is that as that idea emerges sometimes that larger entity they're they're testing the water with you so it's not a it's not a final step they're creating an option and if it looks good let them renegotiate let like, like don't be so uh, rigid in either the beginning or even when the contract is running and when the partnership is running, you don't have to be so rigid. Love it. Love it. So that's interesting. So you got joint ventures, strategic alliance, potential dealer, and you can definitely see how that company, their financial advisors, your company, and, you know, the families, right? And the people will benefit, right? Which is great. I love when those things come together, right? Because, you know, everybody's going to get value there, right? That, that's a good deal. Um, you also just mentioned about, about raising some money on a convertible note. Um, so, um, do you, do, and obviously, like anything else, you'll disclose whatever you're comfortable disclosing. Oh, sure. I don't mind you disclosing know, it. Uh, you know, so is that the first step in a funding plan that you have? Yeah, so, so I've actually executed two steps in our funding plan. So the first step was executing a convertible note. Now, in Silicon Valley terms, that's called uh, triple F money. Have you heard of this? Yeah, yeah. Friends, families, and fools. <laughs> right. So, so for those of the listeners, uh, if you hear the phrase uh, triple F money, it's friends, families, and fools. So I literally, I went out to my friends and I went out to my fools, even one of my family members. And I said, Hey, uh, cause I have one brother who's pretty, <laughs> pretty well to do. And I, and I said, uh, I said, Hey, I'm raising a convertible note and it helped me get started. And that was fine. The next step, uh, was congruent to our philosophy was we did a reg CF or a regulation crowdfunding on, on net capital. Now, net capital is one of the platforms for crowdfunding. So Corey, all my terms are open and disclosed. I raised uh, 375 on our convertible note. I raised another 625 on the net capital crowdfunding. Uh, I put in a little bit of my own money 
Um, so we've raised now 1.3 million. And now what I'm doing is getting ready for a Reg D funding. And a Reg D funding is for accredited investors. And for, again, for the listeners who don't know, in crowdfunding, anyone can invest. Like we had people from India investing a hundred bucks. Small amounts. Set, Small amounts. Specifically set up for that for that purpose. And, and just quickly, just to give some background, people might've originally heard of crowdfunding. So originally, um, crowdfunding um, was was more, you know, where you get some some benefit, right? You know, so like not equity, right? You don't have ownership, right? You get some perks, some whatever. You invest in the movie, and you get a signed poster from the stars. You get the behind the scenes VIP thing. And then for a number of years now, there's been this equity crowdfunding uh, opportunity that is done on, on various these platforms. And one of the things that it's provided is the opportunity for smaller investors who are not accredited, right? They don't meet certain net worth or, or income requirements to be able to invest in these, you know, these kind of things. And, and there are platforms that help do that. So that's what Luke's talking about. And then you go, you know, to this Reg D, which is a more classic private placement investment with people that are, that meet the uh, credit investor. Yeah. They typically write bigger checks. Yeah. So um, uh, we're, we're starting in that. And then eventually we'll probably do a, a normal venture capital round. And yep. again, this is this, let's talk about the deal structure and deal flow. I have a map of my reduction in equity uh, of the company. So I know roughly what I think our valuation will be worth when we hit certain milestones and why, because I've got my comparables. And I know when I'm taking in money, you know, and it's a dilutive event. So I know how much I'm gonna lower my equity. And, and frankly, at this point in my life and at this point in my career, I've started and sold a couple of companies. I'm a proven entity. I, I kind of know what I'm doing. And I also kind of know if we ever got to a point, I'm comfortable where uh, if the board of management said, hey, Luke, this is outstripped your abilities. We, we need to bring in that next leader. Okay, great. Um, and, and I think that's all that clear. It goes back to what you said in, in your book and what you said earlier. It's like, start with your clarity, like be clear yeah. where you are, what you do, what you bring to the table. And then it's easier to know when you're ready to move on and when you're done. And, and I love the fact, because this is something I tell people all the time. And listen, it's harder. If you've never done it before, you never, you know, you don't have that kind of experience that Luke has, it's tougher, but it's important. You know, people try to figure out, um, you know, how much equity they should, you know, give away or, or you know, sell on their, on various rounds or whatever. And I always say, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta work backwards, right? You know, you gotta, you gotta, you know, because some people, the big thing is they never want to lose control of the company. Well, that may, may or may not be realistic, but still, if you want to do that, you got to try to anticipate what your future fundraising rounds are going to look like and sort of work backwards and then see whether that progression or reverse progression, you know, will actually work in the marketplace, right? Have you created enough value where you can actually hit? And then of course you have to hit your targets to be able to, Right. To, you know, to, to be able to make that. That's the other key point. If you don't, you know, if you have that plan, but you don't hit them, then you're in a different position. If you need capital earlier than you thought, or you're not quite at the valuation you thought you're going to get at, at any given stage, then, you know, you, you, you could have a problem as well. Yeah. And I want to add one more thing to that is when I give my advice to entrepreneurs or aspiring deal makers, if you will, I actually tell them, in addition to my advice, don't skimp on your legal team. Like if you have just one thing you're going to put money into, make sure your contracts are pristine. Make sure, you know, please don't go to some legal website and form your company and pff, you're going to save 10 bucks and you're going to cost yourself 
so much pain and possibly millions of dollars if you get it wrong. And I realize that it's people will be like, oh, Luke, you don't understand. It's, it's highly unlikely you're going to get it wrong, but it's not worth it. It's just really not worth it. And so my feeling, Corey, is you get a good lawyer, someone you trust, someone who's got experience in corporate law, uh, you know, not my cousin Vinny, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you know the movie, uh, right? It's my favorite co comedy movie. It's a great, <laughs> funny movie. I love it, right? But you get someone who knows what they're doing and you get clear advice. You follow the corporate structures. And, and, and this relates to things like compliance. A lot of times people spend more mental energy and gymnastics and effort and money trying to avoid compliance than just being compliant. Yeah. And, and if you're compliant, again, you make your company easier to sell. You make it easier for companies to do business with you because no big company wants to do business with a small company that they don't feel that they can trust because the brand, it's too much risk to their brand. It's too much risk. And they're like, you know, big companies have choices. So don't make, don't, you know, be easy to do business with. Be easy to yeah. partner with. Try to be easy to partner with. Yeah, and, and part, of, part of that is that is obviously just the way you interact and, you know, culture and, and you know, being nice. But part of that, uh, especially in the deal space with big companies, is having your act together. Because right. what makes it easy for them is that, you know, you're, you're, you're in compliance, you have your act together, you can present, you know, evidence quickly, you know, your financials are, in, you know, in shape because big, big companies get nervous, especially with smaller companies. They're already nervous with smaller companies, right? Because That's right. Yeah. The uh, last so thing you want to hear is, hey, by the way, we're at the point in our due diligence. Could you send us your cap table? Could you send us a copy of your balance sheet and your income statement? You don't want to be like, uh, I'll like, I'll get that to you in a week. You want to be like, yeah, let me push a button yeah, and hand it to you. Send it to you in an hour, right? <laughs> yeah. um, exactly. Um, Luke, listen, we can, I feel like we could go on for hours. Unfortunately, we don't have hours on the podcast. Um, you know, and, and there's a couple of things that I even know of that we didn't hit yet. So maybe, you know, one of these days we'll have you back. But um, we, we need to wrap up. So I want to, I want to um, give you an opportunity to give some contact information, websites, whatever you want to give for people to find out more about you know, first route and, and what you're doing. And then I, and then I've got a final question for you. Yeah. Just type first route into your search bar. You'll find us. And it's that simple. Uh, we're, we're a co, not a com. So www.firstroot.co. And then my name, I, I've, I've been pretty active for a while in the, in, in various communities. Um, so if you type our names in, or if you go to the show notes or you click on uh, the various things, you'll find us. Great. And in terms of just, uh, you know, one of the questions regarding that, and I'll ask you my final question, um, in terms of sort of who key connections for you would be, you know, and at schools, who, like who else? Like, you know, if, if people say, hey, this participatory finance, you know, like I love what Luke, Luke's doing, um, like who are you looking to get connected to? Uh, a teacher. Um, teachers are the foundation. Um, I am a big fan of remembering that teachers do a lot of hard work. My mom was a school teacher. Right. And so our, I worked really hard to make our software easy to use. And I was really excited today. I was talking with one of our schools in uh, Topeka, Kansas. So we're at an elementary school in Topeka, Kansas. And I said, hey, you guys haven't checked in in, in three weeks. Like, how are you doing? You were supposed to be on phase three right now. And they're like, oh, we're almost done. It's so easy to use. And, and I know a lot of people say that, but but we really do usability test our software because most of the software our kids are using right now is garbage. 
and hard to use. And that's one of the motivations for my company. I saw what my kids were using when they were in high school and I was like, ah, I can do better. So it's just a teacher who cares about civics or a teacher who cares about personal finance. That's all we need. Love it. Great. So folks, keep that in mind. Definitely. You know, if you are a teacher, you know, teachers, I mean, this, this just, uh, I love what Luke's doing here. Luke, my final question in the podcast is always about my highest value, my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means uh, freedom from oppression for all people in the world to the reason why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. Uh, so uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, freedom is a very powerful concept for me too. I've always had very similar feelings. I didn't know this about you. I have much super strong feelings the same way about freedom that you do. I express freedom in a, in a couple of different ways. I mean, this is really profoundly important to me. The first is um, I won't work in a job that I don't believe in. And I feel really sad. I know there are listeners out there who feel that they have a job that, that they have to have for whatever reason. And I get that. I, like I, for me personally, though, I, could, I couldn't do it. So I've, I can honestly look people in the eye and say, I never worked anywhere. Now, I haven't had as much entrepreneurialism as you because one of my first early jobs was I worked at Ross Perot's company, Electronic Data Systems. I loved it. I spent 10 years there. I had great managers. I had great bosses, a super strong ethics, super strong values. Like I just felt like really good at EDS and I loved it. So I do believe, and I felt free at EDS, yeah. right? I felt like I was supported and I was free and I was doing work that I love with people I respect. So freedom for me is also equally important. Now, Sometimes that's expressed as freedom to do what you want with your time, which requires a certain amount of wealth. And I'm at the stage and I might be at the same stage as you are where like we could probably both retire, but you've got a passion. And now I'm going to talk about freedom in the macro sense. I am deeply concerned that our country is losing our democracy. And I am concerned. And I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Tea Party. I care are you an engaged citizen who can have conversations. No one is benefited by rigidity in either party. And that's what's happening. And so the data, because I am an entrepreneur, so I want to have some data. The data out of the University of Arizona it shows that kids who are part of a participatory budgeting program, when they graduate, are better citizens. Literally, they register to vote and they vote at a higher frequency than people who don't. So for me, this is part of my ability to contribute back to a country I love. And I'll, I'll, I'll add a surprising statistic. I've got 3 million miles on American Airlines. Mm. That's how much work I did in my last company. I've done participatory budgeting in Colombia, in Tel Aviv, in Scotland, in Sydney, in India, in Gibraltar, in, in, in Lisbon, in, in Stockholm, in Berlin, in Warsaw, uh, Mexico City, Toronto. I mean, where, where all we, over. Where we need you to do it is in Congress. Well, right. <laughs> and so imagine in 20 years when I've had a whole generation go through our program, we're going to yes. change society for the better. And so I'm with you. I think freedom is, uh, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a really profound driver of, of our company. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, even before you said that, uh, you know, when I looked at what you were doing, like to me, I had that, 
not just the impact, the current impact you uh, you're having. I already saw that flow through right in my mind. So I'm glad that you expressed that because um, it's one of the many reasons that I love what you're doing and and why we are definitely aligned in our thinking and in uh, and I love the way you talked about civics. Right, you didn't just talk about finance from the from the minute from the beginning of this podcast. You talked about civics. And, and for me, that's huge. It's the reason I mentioned, I happened to mention the Coral Leadership New York program, because that's all about, right, being a citizen from all the sectors. Um, so there's a lot we have aligned here. So Luke, for that and so many reasons, I am so glad you were uh, an amazing guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.